Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Guess he's back. COVID is back with a vengeance. Uh, we did show after show about COVID for a very long time for very obvious reasons because we were in the midst of a terrible uh, pandemic, which of course never went away. And perhaps the fact that people, including myself, didn't do more shows uh, for many weeks was a sign of a broader complacency. Omicron is, of course, something, a word experts about the Greek alphabet obviously were more than familiar with, but a week and a half ago, none of us obviously knew what Omicron was about. And now it's, of course, going to define news events for the coming weeks and months in all likelihood. Um, we've got a great show today, which is going to unpack exactly where things stand with Omicron. How serious a threat is it? Uh, what's what's the data telling us at the moment? Uh, you know, it, what kind of measures should be taken? Uh, are we going to head for some sort of lockdown? Now, it's interesting, the polling consistently has throughout much of the crisis shown the public are quite hard line and very pro-lockdown. That isn't the case at the moment at all. People are very weary um, about, obviously, the very authoritarian measures that have been necessary to protect public health. Uh, but nonetheless, at the moment, there isn't public support for lockdown, according to the polling. But of course, that could change if the data changes and Omicron represents a genuine threat here. But we're going to talk about that properly. Before we do, and I've got some fantastic guests, and we'll be talking about statutory sick pay and about the fact that we have one of the lowest statutory sick pays in the Western world. So workers are, are forced to choose often between looking after their family, their kids, and whether or not they are able to stop the spread of a terrible virus which has killed about 140, 50,000 of our fellow citizens. Uh, and we're also talking later about a Labour triumph in Worthing. It's interesting, to, important to talk about that because some very, very important lessons can be learned for Labour more generally. Now, before I bring in our first guest, I just want to bring this up because this is the title of the show, how the Tories are exploiting Omicron for their own personal advantage, uh, political advantage. According to the Times newspaper, so this is what the Times says, on a more cynical level, will the latest COVID crisis and Johnson's rallying cry for another great British vaccination effort help short the government and Downing Street after a torrid few weeks of missteps? As one cabinet minister said, we're in a remarkable position. We've had a wobble, but now we're back on COVID. It's stronger ground for us. It should put us in a good place for the new year grotesque, absolutely nauseating stuff that a cabinet minister is actually rubbing their hands with glee at the emergence of a new variant, which may, may cause huge amounts of death and misery and economic and social dislocation because they think it will shift the narrative away from Tory corruption scandals back onto COVID. Now, the fact they think that's going to benefit them itself, I have to say, is a real sign of failure on the part of much of the media and the opposition, because how on earth 
can the Conservatives ever be in a position after one of the most disastrous handlings of COVID on earth think that they could ever gain partisan advantage from COVID returning uh, or not returning, bear in mind, well over 100 people are dying a day of COVID in Britain at the moment, but a a renewed surge that they think that will benefit them. It is pretty grim and nauseating on a whole number of levels. Now, before I bring in, uh, we're very lucky to have Dean and Pillay again. We had him on earlier this year and lots of people wanted him back because he was so great. Let's just see what the World Health Organization has to say about the latest on Omicron. A new report from South Africa tells that Omicron variant has three times more reinvention rate than Delta. So what are your views on this and how countries can prepare? So this is a preprint um, that has recently been published looking at Uh, the risk of reinfection across South Africa based on the different waves of infection that they have. They did find a two to three times uh, increased risk of reinfection, uh, meaning, and the way that they define reinfection is two tests 90 days apart, at least 90 days apart. We know that people can be reinfected uh, with SARS-CoV-2, but we need to wait to understand really what this means on a global scale. This is one study. Um, showing you know some very good work that's ongoing. We'll let it go through that peer review, and there's a lot of people that are asking questions about this. Now, there, there has been some new data from the Steve Baiko, Chash Wayne, I've probably mispronounced that, apologies to South African viewers, uh, District Hospital, where the Omicron outbreak in South Africa started. So I'll have a little talk about that. As well, politicians are talking, of course, across the UK about potential responses. Let's see what the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, had to say. We keep all of this under review. I mean, I'll be uh, assessing the latest data and the latest uh, knowledge about this variant over the course of the weekend. I'll be talking to my advisers uh, through the weekend ahead of the next Cabinet meeting on Tuesday. You know, we are looking very closely at all of this right now and making judgments about what might or might not be uh, necessary to do. And I've tried all along to say that my job is to take the decisions that we deem to be necessary to keep people safe. And if they are unpopular decisions, then that's my job. I've got to be prepared to do that. Uh, I hope we don't have to introduce any further protections uh, in addition to those we have in place right now, but we can't rule anything out. We saw in Ireland just yesterday significant new restrictions being imposed again. We've got to operate in a way that is designed to keep people as safe as possible and that's a duty the Scottish Government takes very seriously. Now I should say the Scottish Government has itself question marks over it, how it handled COVID-19 uh, but I would say one of the advantages of the Scottish Government response is communication has been better. Now Boris Johnson's office styled as this charismatic politician who has a sort of cut through that most politicians can only dream of. Now his personal ratings actually itself lay that open to a certain amount of scepticism but his 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 ability to communicate clearly during a pandemic which is very important has been poor and at least there i think there's some basic kind of preparing the ground for what may come in the coming weeks now before i bring in our first guest just usual housekeeping if you're watching live click on the youtube link and press like and subscribe you can use super chat to support the show uh, and we'll put the guests uh, we'll put the questions to the guests. I'll read out. I didn't read out the super chats from last week, so huge apologies. So I'll read out at the end those super chats as well as these super chats, and a special thanks to those people. Um, and also to support this 
the podcasts, the videos, the documentaries, all of that. That's patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. We can only do that with our team because of you. So huge amount of thanks for that and do keep supporting us. We've got lots of documentaries in the pipeline. Like, let's bring in now our first brilliant guest. Uh, as I said, Dean Pillay, UCL, virologist extraordinaire. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure to be with you on the show, Owen. I'm fine. Thank you. And thanks for, we should say, apologize to you and also people watching. We are we were delayed because the camera and the microphone weren't working, which is quite essential, actually, for this whole format. So that was unfortunate, but we got there. What do you, what, where, where do we stand based on the latest information about Omicron, as far as you're concerned? Well, Owen, I think just stepping back for the, for, 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 you know, to start with, um, it is probably the most, the most expected event that's happened. It would be the highest thing on the risk register of any country was, is that there's going to be future variants emerge. I mean, variants have emerged. We just, you know, we, this is not speculative. We know what happens. Um, and so the first thing is not to be surprised by a new variant emerging. And the second thing is, um, and I know it's sort of global politics and we're thinking about the local, but, but this is global politics is that, um, the, the woeful um, distribution and uptake of vaccines around the world has directly contributed to this happening. Um, and however much we talk about that, and we've talked about it in the past and, and talked about the need that this is a, a, a global problem, um, we can't just isolate ourselves a, a, a away, that as long as there is replication of the virus and an immense spread around the world, uh, particularly amongst unvaccinated, then there's going to be a risk for the rest of the world. And that's exactly as we found it now. Now, moving though so moving on to you know the 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 you know what what is the impact of of omicron um it, it, it we remain you know early on in the emergence of um this or the or or the documentation of of this we we're not quite sure how it has arisen there are various theories of where it's arisen but what we know is it it didn't just arise at the time of first detection in Botswana and South Africa. Um, we already know, for instance, that um, it was present in the Netherlands um, before that time. It may have been circulating widely in parts of the world where there's less surveillance. Um, obviously, sub-Saharan Africa is one, one area that that could have happened. So this has been circulating for some time. What we're now learning, as particularly from South Africa, and all eyes are on South Africa, because it's a relatively unvaccinated population, a younger population, there's lots of spread of this really, really huge spread at the moment. And what's a bit unclear at the moment is the degree to which it is causing severe disease. Um, there, there are reports from South Africa that that in fact the 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 rate of disease hospitalization is lower than we have seen with Delta and previous variants. Um, but against that is the fact that if it really is very infectious and is therefore going to perhaps overcome the protection that's provided by vaccines, that um, with so many people being reinfected, then of course, even if, if hospitalization and severe uh, disease is a lower proportion of those cases, the total impact of that it, on the NHS, for instance, will be very severe. So, so yes, um, uh, it, it, it is a concern. 
Um, clearly, the critical question to my mind is the degree to which vaccines will um, will prevent severe disease. But given that we've got large amounts of circulation of virus as it is with Delta, then of course the circumstances are such in the UK that of course a new variant coming in, and there's no doubt there's a lot of this new variant, Omicron, in, in the UK will continue to spread. And of course, um, with the implications I've mentioned. Before I just ask you just a bit of what seems to have come out from South Africa, and particularly the province where it, it's believed it's possible, we don't know, where Omicron seems to be particularly rampant in terms of its emergence. But it, it, it's my understanding, and bear in mind, I'm not a virologist, um, as people probably know, but it, that this these variants can emerge in, in, in just one human body, that you could have an immunocompromised person who's unable to defeat the virus, and that allows the virus to to you know go undergo several mutations within a single host and i was wondering because some have suggested that because of high levels of hiv in in southern africa um and the failures partly because of actually in the past pharmaceutical companies it should be said to deal with the previous hiv aids pandemic that these two there's almost two failures of two pandemics which have potentially collided with each other. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, so first of all, you're a very good virologist, obviously, Owen, and uh, and, and so that's great. Um, uh, that is one one theory. Um, and and I, I mean, I ran a research institute in 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 KwaZulu Natal for six years until a couple of years ago, um, and uh, where much, in fact, where much of the work coming out of the genetics and so on is that being undertaken and um it's uh and, and 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 of course hiv is a huge problem in many areas for instance in rural kwazulu natal 30 percent of individuals are infected with hiv and um and, and of course you're, you're right is that the covid pandemic has adversely affected the rollout of antiretroviral treatment which hitherto has been very very successful um uh, but but of course that is a um, has been a problem. So you're also right, is that there have been well-documented cases of people whose immune systems are, are impaired for whatever reason, whether for HIV um, or, or for other reasons such as being on immunosuppressive drugs because of treatment for cancers, leukemias and so forth, is that in those individuals, this virus, which in every almost everyone else is a short-lived infection, does become what we call persistent. And with a persistent infection, it means that ongoing replication of the virus um, um, occurs in the body. And the virus then evolves very quickly, evolves to sort of escape the antibodies that are developed if the antibodies are less less optimal and other other bodily other immune immune responses and therefore can can evolve much quicker than one would expect in a population where there's spread of the virus from one person to another with relatively short-lived infection in the, each individual. So um, that is one theory of why this virus with many, many mutations different to, to previous variants has emerged. But there are alternative um, 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 hypotheses, one of which is that 
it has been circulating in areas of the world which um, you know which have, have, have where surveillance has not been optimal and therefore we've not identified it we've got to remember that South Africa is you know takes the highest number of 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 um, the highest immigration levels refugees um, asylum seekers from Africa we think that we have this image of people coming from Africa across the Mediterranean to to Europe but in fact in Africa South Africa is the main source that's so there's a huge number of people coming and going within um within south africa so it's quite quite clear that there could have been importation um into south africa into Gauteng, um johannesburg and the areas that you say have been uh, uh, the epicenter of of this so whatever the reason this this being you know, we've now got a virus that clearly replicates very well in humans and is spreading before I bring in a couple of questions, a couple of very good questions, I think, uh, from Super Chat, um, I've been looking through the summary of John Byrne Murdoch, who's a Financial Times journalist, who actually is generally regarded as very, very sober, very thorough analytical work on on the, throughout the whole pandemic, really. Um, in terms of the severity of hospital cases, notes from the data released from South Africa over the weekend um, that uh that there's a much lower share of covid patient uh, positive patients in this wave requiring icu than at the same stage of delta wave of course delta is the strain which became dominant uh, earlier this year for patients on oxygen the share now appears roughly the same as delta so 70 percent of patients on oxygen in strain were due to covid um but equally uh actually in terms of what their what what they're finding is actually it's to do with the interaction with age and vaccination status and that's that's the question mark isn't it in terms of how positive those that seems to be at the moment because one hope would be well actually this could become a mild a milder form of covid and therefore if it became dominant that's maybe not a bad thing i mean what what, what do you think Yes. Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of, I think, sort of nonsense actually spoken about um, um, it, by others around that, that viruses inevitably become mild um, in disease. Now, why that is not relevant from an evolutionary perspective with um, with COVID is that you know, all a virus cares about, if one was to consider a virus having a consciousness, all it cares about is that it can spread. It doesn't care um, whether it, um, it it causes severe disease or kills its host, unless unless um, by by going by requiring hospitalisation that takes an individual out of the transmission pool. But the the, the issue with COVID is that um, probably most of the transmission goes on whilst before people are symptomatic and and soon after they become mildly symptomatic in other words you know the the, the function of the evolutionary process of the virus is already done by the time the the uh, people have got severe disease in other words you know there's no evolutionary benefit or not for whether whether it causes disease and the business is done because you're infectious you know before symptoms start often and so i i'm i I'm, you know, I, I don't think this is an inevitable thing. Um, but of course, it may be there are other reasons why this virus 
um, doesn't cause such severe symptoms. One of the really interesting pieces of data that's coming out of South Africa, and it, it remains sort of premature to, to talk, you know, to, to conclude much, but that there are children who are being hospitalized, young children. And so that is very unusual as well as we as we know. And so, you know, you're you're balancing all of these things out in a South African context. Um, knowing as well that the vast majority, as far as I can see, the vast majority of hospitalized patients in South Africa are unvaccinated or only partially vaccinated. So, again, there are many different sort of moving parts and, and, and data coming out. Um, and I think, you know, we've got just got to be a little bit um, careful about overinterpreting that until we've got really good data. Got some really informed questions. One from Tad Campwell. What does Dean and make of the way this variant has taken on a fragment of the common cold virus? I don't know anything about it. I've never heard about this. So I'm very fascinated about this question. And Stephen Baxter asks, what is the feasibility of engineering a variant that is non-infectious to create exponential decay? Wow, two fantastic questions. So um, one of the interesting things that's just come out, in fact, I saw something um, uh, written about it yesterday, was that in fact there's a segment of the omicron uh, um, uh, virus that has a fragment of human um, um, of, of genome of human origin um, which does sort of suggest that that this you know um that this has been circulating in humans Th these sort of mixtures of bits of genome that's what viruses are you know they they're bits of genomes that as they evolve they take on new bits and so on to become to become more um more replication competent um and of course these viruses have all evolved from the coronavirus which is the common cold virus so common cold what is common what you usually you know when people talk about the common cold virus um there's a number of viruses that do cause that the most common one is, is the rhino something called the rhino virus um but the coronavirus the sort of more um common cold coronavirus which is a different branch of the coronavirus family certainly causes the common cold so it's not surprising that there are bits of other viruses there what is interesting is there's also bits of human um genome in there which again is the nature of a virus which is replicating hugely in humans so that's that's what i'd say i i, I don't think there's there's too much to to take home from from that with regard to the second question about can you engineer a virus that um that it doesn't is non-infectious well um that in effect that's what a vaccine is um and um but of course you know just letting that virus out into the population because it's non-infectious is not going to really um is is is, is not going to spread and therefore it in itself is not going to um protect the population um but of course inactivated viruses are the basis of many vaccines and there are some subop not, not you know le less successful than the mrna and the astrazeneca vaccines but there are um um covid va vaccines based on inactivated virus um and so these are not new ideas peter donovan asked is new interferon beta coronavirus treatment if it works with the covid pills will that stop deaths i mean i suppose one of the things which people are interested in is if we're going to be hit by this new variant is essentially the way to get through this going to be lots of boosters mass vaccination of the global south and new antiviral treatments coming on stream 
Yeah, no, that's a really, so what's that constellation look like? Well, you're right. First of all, vaccines are by, by far the most effective way to, to, to deal with this. If we think about some of the new antivirals, and there was one um, that, that, that has already been licensed and another one from Pfizer that is going through the process at the moment. Um, they, they're, they're very promising, um, particularly the one produced by Pfizer is very promising in terms, but the, the, the main caveat here is that um, you need to then be treating individuals within three to five days of first being infected. Now, if you just think about the, 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 the logistics of that, I mean, if, if you or I get symptoms, however much we'd say, yeah, we've got symptoms, we're going to go and test, get ourselves tested. It's, it's often two or three or four days before, before you get round to actually being tested, whether it's by PCR or lateral flow. And lateral flow won't be positive until a few days after starting start being infected. But by that time, to thinking that then, how are you going to get access to a drug, an oral, this is an oral drug that you take as a pill but how are you going to get access to that and you know is everyone going to get access to it? because you know it is um it, it it it's very difficult to see how the antivirals will be a widespread utility unless um we unless the time taken the the, the rapidity by which you know testing can happen is 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 ramped up so it, 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 it these are positive things but of course one needs to think about how they're going to be used of course they could be targeted for high risk individuals so for instance as happens with with influenza um, during severe seasons those who are high risk of getting severe influenza can get the drugs also this case, this case is a drug called Tamiflu or Soltamivir into the, their homes and then as soon as they get symptoms they start being they start treating themselves on the basis that we assume that this is going to be flu without necessarily being tested so that's another model that we could use but um you you're right is, is is vaccines are going to be the mainstay and my sense is that um, in the same way we're talking about boosters now, that we will be, but you know, this this virus will continue to evolve. We're not going to eradicate it from the from the world, but of course we need to do everything we can to minimize transmission in the ways that we that we have. But I think annual uh, uh, COVID vaccines, perhaps combined with flu vaccines, is what we're looking for for the foreseeable future. Won't keep you much longer. I know we know we started late, late, and this has been absolutely fantastic. Very, very clear, very accessible, very detailed. Um, in terms of what do you think of the government's response so far? And as I've said, the polling throughout the pandemic did suggest that the public generally has been actually very hardline on taking public drastic public health measures, which obviously suspend, suspended our basic freedoms for large periods of time. But that that isn't the case at the moment at all. Uh, people are opposed to, for example, large numbers opposed to closing pubs, the kind of things that actually people were very supportive of even earlier this year, obviously. So what 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 do you think of the government's existing uh, measures and what should they be doing and where where do you think they're heading? I mean, one that's been raised at the moment is the question of working from home, which is my understanding scientists think is the one biggest individual contributor to reducing transmissions if that was imposed. And I think there are economic reasons or business reasons why they're not doing that. But anyway, what, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, no. So, I mean, so I think, I mean, my behavioral psychology sort of uh, uh, colleagues and friends uh, in independent SAGE um, often talk about the, um, 
the, the misuse of the term fatigue, that people are fatigued, and that with appropriate, as we learned in the first waves, that with appropriate information um, and understanding, then people are willing to, you know, generally people are, have a social sort of awareness and, and want to protect themselves, their family members, um, and the rest of society. So, um, and, and but the problem at the moment is that where I, this is my, you know, my, my pop sort of psychology understanding um, as a virologist, is that, um, is that there's a narrative about moving back to normality. And when that narrative is there, then, of course, everyone is looking forward to and has their image of what normality looks like, their Christmas parties and, 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 and all the rest of it. Um, but my sense is that why should we be thinking? You know, in fact, wh wh why move back to normality? We, we've had such a shock to the system. This pandemic has demonstrated how vulnerable we, are, are, we all are, how the world is a small place. And there are measures. And of course, new pandemics are very likely to be respiratory born, you know, air, air, aerosol um, and, and airborne. So we've almost had, you know, well, not a dress rehearsal. We've had the real thing. And we've learned about the sorts of ways that we can behave to limit you know our, our that transmission it's not lockdown but things like um mask wearing for instance which has certainly has some protective uh, effect we, we, we it's not surprising we see individuals people from the far east who come to the uk wearing masks and they did that following SARS 20 years ago and that is the way that's been normalized in that 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 situation um that take that so why don't we why isn't the narrative we need to start to you know implement these embed these in what our new normal is equally about ventilation we know this these viruses they circulate much better in indoor spaces crowded spaces so why not spend the time trying to get better ventilation systems criteria for allowing schools to be safe etc etc and that's what I, I i would think we need to be looking forward to and i think there would be support from that from the population but if it if it's if it's characterized as either lockdown or freedom as of course the current government wants to push then of course um, i'm not surprised that there may be a bit of kickback to um, to stringent controls but I, I i think there is space and we should actually start to be thinking what is the new normal what have we learned from covid and this is a risk that's going to stay with us and there'll be new pandemics in the future Dina, that was absolutely fantastic. Really rigorous detail, but as I said, very accessible. And I've learned a huge amount from listening to you there. So we really do appreciate you joining us all over again. Um, and obviously people should follow and support Independent Sage's uh, work. We've spoken to so many of your colleagues, including last week throughout the pandemic, and it's been a real lifeline. So thank you so much, Dina. Really, really appreciate that. My pleasure. And thanks to everyone listening. Cheers, Dina. Bye. Um, we're going to bring in now our next guest who's been left waiting far too long because of our lateness in starting. Hey, Shelley, how you doing? Quite Lovely. all right. Hi, Owen, how are you? Very, very good. Uh, Shelley Asquith uh, is uh, brilliantly leads on health and safety issues um, at the Trade Union Congress. For those who don't know, that's the federation of, the, of almost all trade unions um, in Britain. And you've done, uh, you've been leading so much on brilliant work, because, for example, on statutory sick pay. Shelley's been doing these great videos raising attention uh, about the issue, for example, of statutory sick pay. So 
you just talk about how much? So statue sick bay is one of the lowest levels in the Western world in this country. So t- tell us how much that's a factor in the spread of. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, we think it's a massive factor. You know, the fact that millions of workers can't afford to take time off when they're sick, can't afford to self-isolate is a big reason why COVID has been allowed to spread. So here's the crux of the issue. Statutory sick pay is £96 a week. So compare that to the average income, you're looking at losing 80% of your salary if you come off and claim statutory sick pay. For example, I spoke to a service trains in South Eastern and a bunch of other commuter trains and when they were surveyed by their union 70% of them said they'd had to go into work when they were sick because they just couldn't afford not to as you said at the beginning lots of people are making really difficult choices do I live in hardship for 10 days or so or you know do I go into work and potentially put myself and other people at risk and this is right across different sectors you know people in our food factories even cleaners in hospitals telling us they can't afford to self-isolate when they need to and these are often the most you know lowest paid the most frontline jobs making those hard choices and i mean i think it's no coincidence that as you said we've got one of the lowest rates of statutory sick pay in the so-called developed world and we also tragically have one of the highest rates of covid fatality mm. i mean what really needs to change what are the kind of key demands for workers for unions for people to be fighting for well it's really simple what the government needs to do is raise statutory sick pay and the tuc and unions have been calling for it to be raised to the living wage equivalent which is about 330 pounds a week and that is much more reflective of people's average incomes it would mean people could afford to take the time off when they need to and not have to struggle um we also need them to scrap the minimum earnings threshold. Currently, you've got millions of people just to see. You've also got a couple of million people who don't even get that. They're not entitled to anything if they need time off sick because they earn, on average, less than £120 a week. We want them to get rid of the minimum threshold, make sick pay something that's eligible to every single worker so that everyone can afford to self-isolate. Fine, just last couple of questions. What, what rights do workers have when it comes to COVID safety? I mean, I know lots of workplaces have not been COVID safe throughout the pandemic. And actually, it's interesting. One of the big advices that was always was, you know, wash your hands. People should wash their hands, by the way. Uh, But actually, ventilation is actually far more important when it comes to the spread of COVID-19. And lots of workplaces are not properly adequately ventilated. So I'm just wondering, yeah, what what rights do workers have and what kind of actions have people been taking to, to stay safe? 
Yeah, Dina mentioned ventilation, and that is one of the most crucial things that employers need to be doing to effectively mitigate the risk of COVID transmission. So what rights do people have? Well, fundamentally, you have the right to be safe at work and your employer has to legally self-regulate health and safety. They have to carry out risk assessment first and foremost, and they have to talk to you, the workforce, about that risk assessment. And particularly in light of this new variant, those risk assessments that were made you know, up to a year and a half ago need to be re-looked at, need to be uh, edited and updated they also, employers then need to manage that risk that they've identified in those risk assessment risk of COVID exposure, as well as anything else. And if an employer isn't doing that properly, you know, if they're not got good ventilation, they're not introducing, um, you know, face covering, wearing where it's mandatory, then unions should be raising those concerns, you know, collectively in the workplace, but also to the regulators who can take action against those employers. And we have been seeing lots of, workers taking action over this. We've seen lots of people joining unions for the first time because they see this is really relevant. We've also seen lots more people becoming safety reps and I, I, I want to plug that role. It's a really critical role in the union. It gives you legal rights to do things like carry out safety inspections, sit on safety committees with your employer. And unions have been organising and campaigning on all sorts of issues like sick pay. And we've seen a number of employers raise their company sick pay rate as a result of union pressure, taking action on things like ventilation, getting people paid time of work to get their vaccinations. Really important that people can afford to do that as well. And in some places, you know, the DVLA in Cardiff, for example, you saw people taking industrial action over this. We saw at the beginning of the year in schools education workers using Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act to say in the face of imminent serious danger, they're going to remove themselves from the workforce. So joining a union, becoming a rep, taking action collectively is incredibly important in defending your rights and making your workplace safe. And that is the most important message that I'd send to anyone watching today. Shelley, that's really, really brilliant. And do follow, by the way, Shelley on uh, Twitter because you can get lots of information as we go along about the latest on health and safety about your rights at work it's shelly with no e so it's s-h-e-l-l-y asquith a-s-q-u-i-t-h and do join a union if you're listening or watching join a union type in tc join a union and you'll see which union is relevant for you uh as we can hear here you know the issue of workers rights can be a matter of life and death absolutely Um, so cheers, Shelley. Really, really appreciate you coming on at such short notice on a Sunday. So I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. But thank you so much and lots of love and solidarity. Thanks, Owen. Cheers. Um, Labour, Labour, Labour. Now, we sometimes get criticised, I think, for, uh, oh, you're bashing Keir Starmer. He's doing so well. He's doing his best. Why would you fight the Tories? As you can see, we spend huge amounts of time uh, kicking the Tories. We've got a show <laughs> whose title is about how the Tories are exploiting COVID from uh, partisan advantages. But... We've got to deal with the material as it is when it comes to the opposition. Now, I am going to end the programme at the end after this this really important interview with a piece of news which has actually made me genuinely quite angry. I know sometimes people talk about being angry in quite a performative sense, but no, I was really pissed off, quite full of rage about this story. I'll come on to it afterwards. You'll see why I'm angry about it. But some good news, which uh, is uh, that Labour in a in a local council election in Worthing, absolutely battered the Tories. Now, this is important because the electoral record under Keir Starmer has not been good, generally speaking. Um, Obviously lost Hartlepool, which was kept 
2017 and 2019, including in that election inferno. Uh, nearly lost Batley and Spen. Again, that was kept in 2019. Um, the Labour majority collapsed. Um, in uh, Cheshire and Amersham, Labour was wiped out. Um, lost its deposit. Um, in this, uh, in the latest by-election as well, we just had, uh, there was a 10% swing to Labour, which you kind of think is good, objectively, but unfortunately it's way below the swing of by-elections since 1997. You expect oppositions to do very well in by-elections. They do better in by-elections than general elections. That's the rule, which is why Hartlepool and Batley and Spen were so disturbing, because it suggested Labour was on course to lose dozens of seats even having been reduced to just over 200 in the 2019 election. Local elections have also been pretty bad, patchy, to be honest. Um, Labour have gained and lost seats. You kind of think, well, that's a mixed bag. Not how it should work in a midterm. The opposition should be doing really, really well. So the fact that in Worthing, let me just show you, in Worthing, uh, Labour did do extremely well. Uh, look at this candidate here celebrating. Ricky, we won. Thanks, everyone. You've been amazing. Your vote means that Worthing Borough Council is no longer dominated by the complacent Conservatives who just lost overall control for the first time ever. That is a big, big result. And let's look at the result. Um, uh, so Labour's share of the vote went up by 17.6%. The Tories went down by 1.6% and the Greens were squeezed. Uh, and so were the Liberal Democrats. There was no UKIP standing, so their vote went down, but it seems like some of their vote actually went to the Labour Party. Now, we have the brilliant Hilary Shan Martin. Have I pronounced your name right there, just to check, Hilary? Yeah, you have, very good. <laughs> uh, Hilary Shan uh, Martin, who is uh, in East Worthing in Shoreham CLP and was obviously on the stump campaigning. What happened? Well, as I've said, it's not, I'm so, just being honest, the electoral picture for Labour, I get ang- people get so angry at me for pointing this out, you know, facts being very upsetting for people to hear, but the, the results are not generally good for Labour and haven't been and haven't been pointing in a very good direction. This though, you look at that and go, wow, what happened? So I think it's important to say, started, you know, sort of four or five years ago, um, members under Jeremy Corbyn uh, in sort of 2016, um, we were just able to activism that Labour um, and I think what we found was that the Labour vote was there, it just had to be a voted Liberal Democrat because that had been the kind of traditional anti-Tory vote around here. Um, but when uh, Jeremy Corbyn came along and the influx of um, just huge um, and amount of men able to campaign in a way that we had never been before. We were flooding the streets. Um, and so when we won our first Labour councillor in 2017, that was the first Labour councillor in Worthing for 40 years. Actually add um, sort of three, four every year since. And, and we've gone from zero to 17 Labour councillors in four years. Um, so this is not a reflection of anything that's happened recently. Um, and hence why it looks sort of out of sync with what's going on with Labour elsewhere in the country this is um this is a, a four or five years of extremely hard work by on the ground what were people saying on the doorstep i mean we have um some of the worst worst most complacent tories uh, in worthing um that i've ever come across i mean they really are they have been in power for so long that they stopped listening to the community 
they would uh, spend endless amounts of money on vanity projects that would never go anywhere. Uh, they, they weren't listening to what people wanted. Um, and people have the end of the road with them. And what we have been able to offer um, and our labor um, group here have been doing just such fantastic work in preparing to take the council, which is what we intend to do next year, that we have got such a solid vision for what the town will look like under um, a Labour socialist council um, based on the Preston model, um, that we are able to sell them this positive vision for a town whose um, residents have just been ignored for years and years by a complacent group of Tory councillors. Um, and, that, and that's what they were telling us. So what could Labour learn from this nationally? And we actually saw in the local elections when Labour did badly earlier this year, there were some striking exceptions where I'd say they'd summed up by either being offering, being seen to offer an alternative and or fight the Tories. So, for example, the Salford Labour mayor did very well um, and so did Andy Burnham. And I wouldn't actually place them in the same political tradition. But the one thing they did have in common was Andy Burnham, for example, pushed for public ownership of buses and was seen to have taken on the Tories over the treatment of the North in the pandemic. And in Salford, they've been again pushing overtly socialist policies as much as that's possible under local um, powers. Um, and you mentioned Preston and the Preston model, which people should look up and Google, by the way, uh, some great articles about it. But basically, you know, what they do is they bring in services, it, they, they get um the, the council to support local services local economy the local economy um so just talk us through what can be learned do you think from labor what could labor learn nationally from what you did locally yeah absolutely i think one of the biggest things um and the biggest changes um that's happened under starmer's leadership is the shift away from community organizing and that is such a huge mistake i mean they got rid of the community organizer post during the pandemic such a travesty that was something that we had benefited from so much we had charlotte gerardo used to be our community organizer down here and that you know training of members to embed themselves in their community made such a difference to us and that's really what has happened here is that we've had we've been able to gain councillors and those councillors have embedded themselves in the community through what we like to call the socialism in action approach um, and are involved in some of the biggest community projects in the town. Um, two of them uh, set up the Worthing Food Foundation. Um, and although that's, that's an apolitical project and it's not tied to the Labour Party, um, it's a charitable organisation, but it's addressing community need. Um, so that's what Labour needs to get back to. They need to get back to preparing the membership and giving them the tools and resources to connect with their own communities. Um, and number one, they need to stop attacking the membership. You know, I think that's really important to say that the victory down here is in spite of this unprecedented level of attack on um, Labour members. And we have Labour members out electing Labour councillors who are under threat of investigation and suspension, etc. Um, and so we are, you know, for us uh, on the EC and, and the Labour group, everything, we're having to operate in this um, atmosphere of threat as well. And, and trying to keep members in and keep them motivated and still wanting to go out and, and campaign on behalf of the Labour Party. Um, and so that that's the number one thing that needs to be addressed here. Um, and if you look at, you know, we've been successful in doing that in Worthing, we've managed to stay united, we've managed to, um, you know, not allow that to, to affect our campaigning. 
Um, and this is what happens when, when you do that. Hilary, great stuff. Again, it is, it's important to talk about these examples because I, I would say Labour in a bit of a state in, in lots of ways. The government, catastrophic handling of the pandemic, multiple corruption scandals, broken promises. It's as bad as it gets for the government. And, you know, oppositions are normally ahead by quite a big margin in midterm. Um, and that isn't a guarantee of victory. Otherwise, Ed Miliband would have become prime minister. So the fact that below what, you know, way below what Labour won in 2017, but wet, but actually not as good as the polling in the 18 months after the 2017 election before the Brexit debacle obviously caused both the Conservatives and Labour to collapse in the polls and then the Tories recoup their vote more than the Labour did, hence what happened in December 2019. You know, we do need to learn from these examples. What what does it say? And obviously there are local features which are very specific to the area, but there are clearly important elements which Labour needs to be listening to. So it's really great to have you and let's let's hope people in the Labour Party can learn from what you've done. Yeah, hope so. <laughs> Cheers, Henry. I think, um, yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. Take care, lots of love. Um, before I finish, I said I was angry about something, and it's, it's again, it's about Labour. Um, and again, uh, do you know what? I, I, I talked about this on Twitter yesterday, and I got the usual, you know, army of people, um, quite i'm afraid cult-like supporters of uh the labor leadership they hate that because they're like oh you're a hypocrite oh corbynism was a cult well it's like i mean you know <laughs> whatever people say about the online behavior of corbyn supporters in the midst of almost the entire british media being hostile at the time to the labor leadership some of them did go over the top there's no question every movement has people going over the top at least they believed in something <laughs> at least there was a point <laughs> um I mean, you know, you get, you know, these people who, there's this account, a brilliant account um, online, which uh, does this thing, go, goes this you. And what what happens is I get my mentions flooded by people going, you're a disgrace, you're in, you're a Tory stews, you might as well. I keep getting told to join the Conservatives, join the Tories. I joined the Labour Party age 15. Tony Blair was leader, voted for Labour in every single local and national election in my entire life. Um, and these people who said that Corbynism was all about telling people to go and F off and join the Tories are now flooding my mentions. But this you, what it does, is it gets uh, those people who denounce people like myself? For, oh, you're being disloyal. You're you're by denounce by criticizing the Labour leadership. You're playing into the Tories' hands, and then this account digs up what they said when Jamie Corbyn was leader, and most of them were very Liberal Democrat. I mean, it's just a joke. You know, they were calling for the Labour leader to be obviously got rid of, and they were voting for another party, including the 2019 election, which was your one big chance to stop Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister. So if you didn't take that, I think your moral um, stature when it comes to lecturing other people is weak. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, this question of infighting, because I would contend that the Labour leadership, rather than, I don't know, some random Guardian columnist, the Labour leadership's had the easiest ride from the media of any Labour leader since Tony Blair, easiest ride from its own MPs since any leader since Tony Blair. Like they've had everything in their favour and they still are often a shambolic mess. Not like New Labour, by the way. New Labour, disagree with them fundamentally. They were titans. They knew how politics worked. They had the Tories on the ropes. This lot, embarrassing. Now, the reason I bring this up is an issue of they're the ones who keep doing the infighting. They're the ones who keep attacking their own party rather than the Conservatives. Let's look at this. I'm really pissed about this. Um, so uh, Angela Rayner aide Jack McKenna suspended over data breach. So Labour suspended Angela Rayner's. She's the deputy leader of the Labour Party, the elected deputy leader. She's got her own mandate. 
Um, in an escalation of hostilities between her and Sir Keir Starmer, Jack McKenna, who manages the deputy leader's relations with the media and writes her speeches, learned of the action last night. He's been placed under investigation on suspicion of a personal data breach involving another Labour staff member. The party said the inquiry does not amount to a presumption of guilt. Hold on a minute. You might have just noticed that. Did you notice what? Did you notice the problem with, with that whole element? Okay, this is the problem. He's been accused of a data breach. Okay, which I, I'm extremely skeptical of. That's a data breach. What the Labour leadership just did. They leaked to the Murdoch press, a conservative rag against one of Labour staff members. Do you remember the Labour leadership contest when Keir Starmer did that big Trump? It's the only time I've seen him at least pretend to be passionate. I will not have staff members attacked. They can't defend themselves. When one of his staff members was criticised. And now his team briefing against they've they've briefed he learned about this as it says there from the sunday times he, did, he wasn't told by the labor party he, he he was told by the sunday times of the action taken against him in a data breach because they shouldn't be leaking private disciplinary matters to newspapers so they've that's the data they've done what they're accusing him of now, the reason, I just think this shows what a bunch of jumped up thugs these people are. And I know some of them, they are. I mean, they are the sorts of people who watch the West Wing and think they're big shots and they know how politics works, but they are so embarrassing when you meet them. So mediocre, so weak, no substance, only obsessed with bashing the trots. That's, their, that's what makes their pulse rage a bit faster. Watching Neil Kinnock's 1985 speech attacking militant on repeat pathetic these people are thuggish now whether or not you agree with angela rayner or not you know she grew up around the corner literally around the corner for me in stockport by the way she's not from the same political tradition as me i've got a huge amount of respect for actually working class uh you know mom age 16 who rose to the top in politics in very adverse circumstances again different politics things I disagree with her on, the way she's been treated is so despicable by the Labour leadership. And actually, to the anger of lots of people on my side of politics on the left, actually, her, she's angered a lot of them because they think, actually, she's helped Keir Starmer get away with many of the things he's got away with internally. So she's done all of that, and they've still gone for her. So what did they do? Okay, so after the Hartlepool by-election loss, Keir Starmer's fault, he's the leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner wasn't running that campaign. They tried to scapegoat her. They were like, what should we do? Oh, I know. We'll scapegoat a working class woman from Stockport, deputy leader, didn't run the campaign, sacked her as party chair, in a, and then just generally tried to just take her down. They can't get, they can't sack her because she's elected deputy leader, so they can't take out the shadow cabinet. So that's what they did. They briefed against, her, his team briefed against her clothing. They briefed that her clothing was inappropriate. How sexist is that? They, when, this gets worse, in the aftermath of the horrific murder of David Amos, there was a storm whipped up because of Angela Rayner's comments about the Conservatives, calling them homophobic and misogynistic scum. The fact that you could link alleged Islamist fundamentalist terrorism to Angela Rayner is so unhinged, it's not even worth me trying to debunk it. But there was that whole big storm at the time, uh, people talking about her comments, and Keir Starmer's team 
briefed against her to the Mail on Sunday, which is a despicable rag, by the way, a racist, nasty, conservative rag. They briefed against her, get this, when she was on bereavement leave. One of her close, the clo- people closest to her in her life had died a few days earlier. She was on bereavement leave and his team griefed against her to the mail on Sunday. And now look what they're doing. Now in their pathetic, never-ending war with Angela Rayner and her operation, they've clearly gone for her staff member by briefing against him, breaching data to the Sunday Times. It's just... It's just unbelievable. These, these these are not nice people. They are, they are nasty, nasty people. And I just don't even, I mean, you know what? I mean, you know, I'm the sort of person, they don't need to worry about me in terms of my vote. Not that they care, obviously. But I mean, I vote Labour come what may. A lot of people think that's pathetic. They think, you know, if you do that, then they'll just think they can get away with anything. But I know other people take a different view. And a lot of people... Whatever the faults of Corbynism, it did have faults. It did attract people on the basis of a vision of a new society. And, you know, that operation itself could be pretty shambolic a lot of the time. But they weren't people. These were people who had been exiled to political Siberia for most of their lives. The people around Kirstam were supposed to be the grown-ups in the room, you see. The whole point was, oh, well, you know, you might lose some of the principles, but you'll get competence. Integrity. That was on Keir Starmer's leaflet during the leadership campaign. Integrity. Does that? Does any of this sound like integrity to you? Doesn't sound like integrity to me at all. Sounds. It's just gutter politics. And what does that tell us? What does that tell us when they've behaved in this way towards this one person about their style of politics, about the sort of government they would seek to lead, about the sort of, you know? And this is the thing. Like if Corbyn's administration has tried to do any of these things, blue murder would have been screened. I think you and I think all of you know that. So I'll get these people to now see me. Oh, Owen, not fighting the Tories as though I haven't just done that my whole life with almost everything I've ever done. Because I've just criticized again the Labour leadership taking on its own side rather than taking the fight to the Conservatives. Now, I know a lot of people now, they're all jubilant because they've done this whole reshuffle. They brought Yvette Cooper in, a Shadow Home Secretary, which is funny because people forgot she was Shadow Home Secretary for four years under Ed Miliband and landed no punches, meaningfully, on Theresa May. So few punches that Theresa May just glid her way uh, as successor to David Cameron without even a challenge. So, I mean, if if Yvette Cooper had been good as Shadow Home Secretary you'd have expected some pretty bad damage done to Theresa May's career. Not so. Uh, Instead, what she did in her tenure is uh, indulge anti-migrant bashing, including, for example, calling for job seekers' allowance to be stripped away from them. Now, for migrants, now, what do we expect to happen as the Tories whip up anti-migrant racism, which is what the Tories always do, particularly when they're in trouble. They try and turn people's anger onto migrants and refugees. Do you expect the Tor- Labour to say, no, 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 no. We fight back from that. Don't blame people who are vulnerable and struggling and, f- and fleeing terrible violence. Instead, be angry with the people at the top of society, including these corrupt Tories who break their promises. Now, that's clearly not what they're going to do. They're going to indulge uh, 
you know, anti-migrant racism, not going to fight it back. Uh, and we've seen that record being played before because when Labour does that, it just makes immigration more of an issue. Um, and when that dominates politics, uh, that benefits the Conservatives because they're always trusted to crack down on migrants and refugees, however much Labour try and indulge in a Dutch auction about how horrible they can be. The Tories will always win in that particular um, gruesome battle. So, you know, that's what we've got at the moment. We've got this grubby, nasty, gangsterish politics being played out. There's no compelling vision being offered by the Labour Party, just none. I mean, what is it? What's the vision for the country? Um, and, in, you know, and when it came, and actually, again, whatever the faults of uh, Starmer's successor, one of the reasons over the last few years, um, people's attitudes in immigration have got more positive is I would contend the fact that Labour stopped playing the game of 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 of, of trying to, you know, out compete the Tories and, and bash migrants and indulge in xenophobic tinged rhetoric. I mean, it's just going to be self-defeating on its own terms. It's, it's, it's depressing. It's depressing. And, you know, people want me to lie. They want me to pretend everything's fine. They want me to be a Labour Party press officer. Um, I'll keep saying what I think, including talk about positives, like we just heard in Worthing, which Labour should be learning from. Anyway, um, let's get that on my system. Um, we've got lots of stuff coming up. I should say, by the way, the channel's not been as active as it should be because I'm finishing my book, which is six years overdue. I'm being told by my producer to remember Super Chats. I will remember Super Chats this time. Um, I'm finishing my book, which will be done by the end of January. Um, and then I can throw everything into the, we can throw everything into the YouTube channel, but that's, and, and the podcast, that's that's just why, just why. It's called The Alternative and and How We Build It. And it will hopefully be out next autumn that I have to finish it. So that's why. Uh, so I better go and do that now. So just quickly, uh, lo lots of love and thanks to people on Super Chat, Tad Campwell, Stephen Baxter, Peter Donovan, David Bowater. And last week we missed, hold on, um, because of my stupid incompetence. Here we go. Um, oh, let me bring it up. Oh, good. This is a, oh, here we go. As you can see, very competent. Um, where is it? Ah, here we go. Here we go. Oh, Max McDonough there as well. Uh, and last week, Mello Maggot and Tad and David Barrett again. Um, Max McDonough, Starm is my MP. I feel like I need a wash every time he appears in public. Gosh. I mean, think it, do you know what? I'm going to say something which you, a lot of you now are going to go, Woo. Keir Starm on a personal level is a perfectly nice guy. I know. I mean, does he, do these things matter? You know, is people's niceness judged by how well they behave on a personal level or the operation being horrible, vindictive, nasty, bullying, thuggish shits? Yeah, it's a difficult one. On a personal level, perfectly nice guy. No politics. Obviously, he'll cease it's being leader of the Labour Party. Um, but, you know, th this leadership is just, just the stuff they've done is just terrible. And the fact they think they've got a, mo they've got a, moral high ground um david barreter says what are the chances of labor breaking out into all that civil war well the thing is you know i mean they've got this all nailed down because you know as i've said he has had the easiest ride from mps since tony blair um that's the thing all the things that have gone wrong for labor it's not like you know a constant civil war being waged by the parliamentary labor party as was the case in the corbyn it's not like the media every day are going oh he's the second coming of you know it's not second coming uh he's he's the antichrist he's you know it's al-qaeda isis or whatever terrorist lovers you know they've just done this all by themselves so will there be a labor civil war i mean they've got you know they've got the support of most liberal commentators they've got most labor mps even if a lot of them think Keir Starmer is useless and his team are useless they're like well at least he's not corbyn so 
you know, and the left have been marginalized, not treated as legitimate uh, political actors. So I don't think it's, you know, it's difficult to have kind of, you know, when they say people like me are like, you know, we're sabotaging Labour's efforts, you know, the electorate aren't sitting around thinking, oh, what do people on the left think? Because they're not hearing people from the left because they've been so marginalised and silenced. Anyway, um, thanks for listening today. Uh, really great show. Just so learned a huge amount. Um, do support us, as I said, on patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84 so we can keep the show on the road and do all the documentaries we've got planned. Um, uh, do press like on YouTube um, and subscribe and also subscribe to our podcast. Um, lots of love, everyone. I'm going to go and write that book, uh, which I, as I said, is very overdue. Thanks so much for our guests. Uh, take care, everyone, and I will see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash owenjones84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.